0: The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This episode is supported by independent educational grants from Estellus & Pfizer, Inc., AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lantheus Medical Imaging, and Merck & Co., Inc. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Rahman, and I am Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational podcast series with this specific podcast titled Novel Imaging for Genital Urinary Cancers, Diagnostics, and Theranostics. It's my pleasure to host a real thought leader in this field, Dr. Mark Berlin. Dr. Berlin is Associate Professor of Urology at the University of North Carolina. He is a uh, fellowship-trained urologic oncologist and he has really uh, led, I think, our field in many ways in thinking about novel imaging for genital urinary malignancies. And I've had the pleasure of working with him on our new technologies committee within the Office of Education and have really had a great opportunity to hear some of his thoughts and reflections on uh, a lot of imaging technology as well as new technologies in our field. So first of all, Mark, uh, as always, uh, yeah, I know you've done several of these with us. Uh, we and I are always appreciative of your time and, and really a big thanks for, uh, for doing this podcast today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for the kind invitation. Thank you for the kind introduction. And yeah, I'm excited to discuss uh, molecular imaging and theranostics in the genital urinary oncology space.
0: Great. So maybe I would just uh, kick it off and, and maybe just give our listeners. Um, an overview of, of what we're going to be covering maybe over the next uh, 30 minutes or so. And then obviously we'll we'll go into a lot more of the specifics, maybe into different disease processes, different imaging modalities, but maybe just give us the high level view of what we're going to be covering.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we'll spend a little time today discussing, you know, pet imaging in genital urinary cancers. We'll spend a little time looking at prostate, kidney, bladder? What are pet agents? What are the pet agents that are available for each of these disease spaces? How do they compare to conventional imaging? And then probably on the new frontier is more Theranostics, really what is Theranostics and how is it kind of implied or, or, or brought into our clinical care?
0: Well, that, that's really great. And, you know, it's interesting. We've I, we've done several of these podcasts over the years and, and we've we've continued to talk about imaging and and i I think it's sort of a sign of how much progress is made that each time we talk um the landscape is not dramatically different but it's shifted somewhat and and some of these um concepts these, these that last segment where we always talk about what's coming down the pike it's interesting sometimes a year or two later it's not what's coming down it's now become a part of our clinical practice so i i think it's really great to be able to talk about these and especially because um, as you alluded to, so many of these have become so much more um, relevant, not just in specialty practices, but frankly, um, frankly, all of our practices across the board. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, I would be remiss if, if if we didn't start with prostate cancer imaging, and, and obviously what has increasingly uh, become um, germane to many practices is, is PSMA-based imaging and PSMA PET scans. And before we maybe talk about that specific test maybe talk a little bit about more broadly what is PSMA and perhaps how is that different from some of the other radio ligands that we've used historically for imaging prostate cancer
1: yeah ab- absolutely so you know just for our audience PSMA is prostatic specific membrane antigen it's a it's a transmembrane protein found on prostate cancer cells and then in the setting of a PSMA pet scan that there is a protein that has a radio tracer tagged onto it, and that protein then binds to the PSMA uh, transmembrane um, molecule and it's transmitted to in, inside, sorry, inside the cell of uh, the prostate, accumulates in that uh, prostate cancer cell, and then lights up uh, when, the, when the patient is scanned. That's accompanied... With some type of cross-sectional imaging, so then we can diagnose: A, is this specifically prostate cancer, and then B, where is the anatomical location?
0: And and just really for our listeners, um, obviously we talk so much now with with PET scans and prostate cancer uh, and, and PSMA. Maybe just give our sense to give a sense to the listeners of some of the the other agents that are available for prostate cancer imaging. Maybe those that maybe are. I don't want to say older, but maybe aren't used as much in clinical practice at this point.
1: Yeah, one of the prior radio tracers that originally caught a lot of enthusiasm was fluciclovine, which is a fluorine-labeled tracer, but really we found out it didn't have the performance characteristics that competed with PSMA, so that has fallen out of favor a little bit, and historically, there's been other kind of generic tracers like FDG, for example, is a radio tracer that just looks at glucose uptake that is not terribly specific to prostate cancer itself. Uh, and then there's some even choline radio tracers that, again, are not specific to, to prostate cancer. So really, before we moved into the PSMA, pe- PSMA uh, PET space, uh, there was these kind of generic radio tracers, but none of them really had the performance characteristics of a PSMA PET scan.
0: And, and what are... Um... Maybe right now in, in December of 2023, what what are the available PSMA-based tracers for um, for clinicians to use?
1: Yeah, and and I think that's a a great question. What's available, and then which one should I choose of those that are available? There's the the gallium 68 PSMA uh, radio tracer, which was the first FDA-approved radio tracer that came out in 2020. There is the F18 radio tracer, commonly called Polarify. That was FDA-approved in 2021. And then there's a third uh, FDA-approved PSMA radio tracer that just came out uh, in May of this year called uh, Flotuloflastat, (laughs) mouthful. But um, a lot of um, our, our colleagues ask, of these three, which one should I be choosing? And I think the answer is probably what is available to you? Because we really think the performance characteristics are essentially quite similar between all three of these and not all institutions have all three of them. Uh, so commonly my answer is get, get whichever one is available to your institution. And, and even there was a um, recent review paper in uh, prostate cancer and prostate diseases that looked specifically at uh, differences between these two fluorine-based and gadolinium based radio tracers, and there were no differences in terms of clinical impact.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting you say that, because I think practically speaking, it's very interesting, at least at Penn State, in our order entry system, um, it, it's really an order entry system for PSMA PET. And, and as I get the studies back, I will notice that um, whatever tracer was probably available was the one that was used for the study. So it's not always the same one. And, and in fact, now I feel like I'm starting to even see some of the newer agent, Pazluma, uh, the, the newest agent that was, that was in May of 23. And, and it seems like, um, at least from our, our radiology colleagues, are to your point, with no clear difference in performance characteristics being different, are, are largely using whatever is most available and readily available.
1: Yeah, same, same with our institution. It's often somewhat dependent on what time of the day the patient is scheduled, if the radio tracer is available in the morning or in the afternoon. And then one thing that our, our keen uh, nuc faculty members do is that if the patient had a prior uh, PSMA PET scan with one radio tracer, and now they're getting a subsequent one, we try to stick with the same radio tracer that hmm. they got the first time, just in case there were some subtle differences.
0: So, so we've talked about different tracers. Obviously, you highlighted very clearly that the performance characteristics of PSMA is, is really at present superior to some of the uh, other not, more non-specific um, agents that we historically used, but maybe talk a little bit about performance characteristics of PSMA, maybe in a few different settings, and I'll kind of throw them out to you and, and you can sort of give us your thoughts. So um, how, how well does PSMA do with regards to the primary tumor?
1: Yeah. So um, interesting question, because a lot of uh, clinicians have asked, can can PSMA replace conventional MRI imaging for staging? And, and honestly, I don't think the data is quite there yet. I think MRI outperforms PSMA PET in terms of key characteristics like extra prosthetic extension. Um, PSMA PET is pretty good at SV invasion. Uh, but as of now, I think uh, uh, MRI is still kind of the the imaging modality that trumps PSMA PET in terms of primary uh, localized disease staging.
0: And it is even somewhat a relevant question, because I think I've read a few articles or at least seen a few uh, presentations about proceeding with definitive local therapy based on um, PSMA imaging alone, right? Without a biopsy, without maybe the MR. And, And so it does sort of provoke that question, as you've alluded to, which is, um, what is the, not necessarily the accuracy, but can it characterize all the elements of the tumor, uh, the primary tumor that would allow us to make sort of the most informed decision making possible?
1: Yeah, I, I know those kind of articles that you're referring to. It, it is um, probably on, on the horizon that the performance characteristics at some point will get to the, to, the, to the area where we don't actually need a biopsy. I think personally, we're probably not there yet. Uh, but it is quite thought-provoking knowing that that would be a minimally invasive uh, way to, to, to ensure a diagnosis without having to put a, a guy through a biopsy.
0: What about um, for lymph node and bony metastasis? I mean, obviously, those are the two that we think about most commonly with prostate cancer. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about um, performance characteristics in those two settings.
1: Yeah. So uh, in terms of lymph node involvement, you know, historically, we get uh, contrast-enhanced CAT scans uh, which look at you know size criteria and morphology criteria in terms of determining an abnormal lymph node. And really the, the PSMA PET outperforms that. They have a greater accuracy, usually somewhere around 92% compared to 67% for uh, conventional imaging. Uh, their sensitivity and specificity is, is quite high, 85%, almost 98% in terms of specificity. So really outperforms conventional cross-sectional imaging. Uh, in terms of lymph nodes. Uh, Also, it outperforms uh, bone imaging quite substantially. There are still a few uh, false positives in PSMA PET imaging, uh, but it does uh, characterize bone lesions far superior than that than the uh, conventional technetium bone scan, which then kind of leads to the question, can PSMA PET replace both, you know, conventional cross-sectional CAT scan imaging for lymph node detection as well as bone scan. And I think the data suggests it, it probably can, meaning that if you've already gotten a PSMA PET scan, there's probably no need to then subsequently get a, a bone scan in someone who's at risk for metastatic prostate
0: cancer. And, and maybe just dovetailing on that last point you made there, maybe just educate our listeners a little bit on what, what do the guidelines um, uh, tell us about? And, and obviously, I, I think you know guidelines help uh, obviously, standardized care, uh, I think payers themselves, in, in many respects, look at guidelines for for coverage um, purposes of study. So what do the guidelines say about PSMA PET for prostate cancer?
1: Yeah, so there's kind of three conventional guidelines that have suggested the use of these uh, PSMA PET scans, the American Urologic Association, the National Comprehensive um, Cancer Network, and then there's an um, appropriate use criteria, which has been a consortium of different societies that put together a statement. But typically, they divide it into um, men who are getting imaging for initial staging, and then men who have suspected biochemical recurrence. In the AUA, um, their statement says that it's reasonable to get uh, a PSMA PET scan in men who are at high risk for metastatic disease with negative conventional imaging um, in that setting. And then they do suggest getting a PSMA PET is the preferred imaging modality for men with uh, sedi- or, or biochemically recurrent disease. NCCN guidelines are also uh, similar. They say consider getting a PET scan in, in men with um, equivocal results on initial bone scan or cross-sectional imaging, and that it is the preferred imaging test uh, for biochemically recurrent disease. And then the appropriate use criteria have a number of clinical scenarios that they highlight where it's reasonable to get a PSMA PET. Typically, these are for um, men with uh, unfavorable intermediate risk disease, high-risk disease, or very high-risk disease, uh, as well as, again, recurrent disease. And they also suggest it's reasonable to get in men who have non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer um, with, with no evidence of disease on conventional imaging. So small nuances between each uh, society guidelines, but they do suggest there's a role for this imaging test in st- staging and uh, both initial staging and recurrent disease staging.
0: And then really just to, to sort of close up this thought process on, on PSMA diagnostics, I, I, you know, it's, it's an excellent test, but it, it is not a perfect test. And, and maybe you could just really briefly comment. The two things I always think about are, um, does the story make sense? Meaning you know are, are the areas that are lighting up consistent with what we believe should occur with the disease, and then also uh, maybe the concept of looking at SUV and and you know that that maybe you know ferrets out some of this non-specific background activity and and is there a certain SUV threshold that you look for that clues you into hey th- this really might be real disease as opposed to some non-specific uptake
1: yeah, and I, I- I think putting it in the context of of what makes sense is really key. That if you have an avid, you know, uh, lymph node or avid bone, that really isn't typically what we see in terms of landing zone for prostate cancer. It makes us think twice. And also knowing that there is some false positives in this test. And in terms of avidity, you know, we commonly use things like pooled blood as a reference. And I think um, having a a team that is savvy with interpreting these and then knowing what what we think is a true uptake versus a false uptake is key in in learning uh, how to interpret both the images and then how it impacts our our clinical use.
0: So we've we've talked uh, about PSMA-based PET imaging, and and that sort of, uh, I think, lays the framework for really what I feel like has become um, technology that has really become has really moved into the clinical workspace over the last few years to a, to a significant degree, especially within the U.S. So, and that's sort of the concept of theranostics. So, could you just first talk to a little bit about what what is PSMA theranostics? What, what does that actually mean when I when we say that when I'm saying that?
1: Yeah. So, really, the, the word theranostics is a combination of therapeutics and diagnostics. So, it's a, it's a test that can actually simultaneously and sequentially both diagnose and treat a condition. And then in the space of prostate cancer, this would be a a radioactive labeled drug that then binds to PSMA. And then similar to the the actual PET imaging, uh, it's incorporated into the cell of the prostate cancer. And this time also it lights up, but not only lights up, it treats the prostate cancer itself. So it's a pretty exciting space that it can both identify where the disease is and then treat it at the same time.
0: So, um, in the setting of looking at the therapeutic side of things, uh, maybe talk a little bit about um, what what agents and what radio ligand we have, and and then you know what is what what data and what sort of maybe the data that that folks should know about with regards to uh, theranostics.
1: Yeah. So, so the main um, agent out there is lutetium. Uh, 177 PSMA uh, radio ligand, and this was a uh, agent that was used as part of the the Vision study, which our audience may be familiar with. It was a phase three randomized study that was conducted between June of 2018 and October of 2019. And this study enrolled just over 800 men with metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer and they were treated and it followed for just under 21 months. Of note, all of these uh, patients uh, were previously treated with at least one taxane chemotherapy and one angigen receptor inhibitor. But essentially they got this drug every six weeks for six cycles uh, in addition to standard of care, and then compared to standard of care. And what the study showed is there was an improvement in overall survival. 15 months versus 11 months, but also an improvement in progression-free survival um, based on the the imaging group. It um, it also showed that in terms of quality of life, that most men uh, have a quality of life that was truly unaffected during treatment. So it's very attractive to patients that they they can get this treatment without having a large hit in their uh, quality of life. And this was a success story of this, you know, theranostics. And as a result, in March of 2022, the FDA approved this lutetium-177 known as Pluvicto. Um, and it's FDA approved in the space of metastatic castor-resistant prostate cancer in men who have been previously treated with chemotherapy and an androgen receptor um, drug. But I think what's exciting is it's now kind of moving into this space a little bit proximal to that. So it... it hopefully will be in the near future that this drug has the potential to treat men who also have not yet seen chemotherapy. So new, new technology on the horizon and offering it to a new subset of patients.
0: No, I think you're right. And, you know, I feel like this is what we've seen for so much of advanced prostate cancer is that these agents and these drugs and these therapies are first studied in in the sort of end stage scenario, CRPC have already seen multiple agents. And then, as with everything, they start moving maybe earlier and earlier in the disease paradigm. Just for clinical uh, purposes, probably um, one important thing is that in order really to be um, a candidate to think about using Pluvicto, it really does require, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it really does require a patient to have a PSMA. Scan a priori, right before that, and you should be able to see PSMA avid lesions. Is that am yep. I am I stating that correctly? Yep. Yeah.
1: yep, absolutely correct. Yep.
0: Um, so uh, we've spent, you know, obviously the the first portion here and a good portion really talking about prostate cancer PSMA. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit and and maybe we'll finish out the program talking about kidney uh, tumors, kidney cancer, and and maybe just. Uh, focus on two different realms, I think, of of where we can use imaging and novel imaging in kidney cancer. The first is um, uh, the the Sestamibi scan, and um, and and talk to us a little bit about what what is the the principle of why one would even think about a Sestamibi scan for um, equivocating renal tumors, and and what sort of information do you get from that?
1: Yeah, exactly. So the the Technetium. Uh, sestamibi scan aids in really discerning benign from malignant renal tumors. It's kind of minimally invasive, almost biopsy, if you will. And this agent—it's a lipophilic mitochondrial imaging agent. It's been widely used for years in the in the uh, myocardial and parathyroid imaging space. But essentially, this technetium-labeled sestamibi accumulates in cells with a high mitotic content and a low multidrug-resistant pump. And specifically, oncocytomas have a very high uh, mitochondrial mass. So this drug is incorporated, lights up in renal oncocytomas. And then conversely, clear cell renal cell carcinomas are almost entirely devoid of mitochondria. And as a result, they are almost all cold on this imaging test. And then there are some subtypes um, that have kind of mixed amount of uh, mitochondria that can have some in, indeterminate results. But for the most part, uh, this drug allows us to identify avid uh, oncocytomas and then exclude some more aggressive uh, you know, histologic subtypes such as clear cell carcinoma. So it allows us to risk stratify better those tumors which may be benign and those tumors which may have a more aggressive um, histologic
0: subtype. So, so talk a little bit, I, I think you've highlighted the two um, <clears throat> ends of the spectrum, which is obviously if you have an oncocytoma, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have a clear cell carcinoma. Um, but maybe talk about where maybe some of the diagnostic challenges uh, occur, may, maybe that sort of gray zone in between where maybe the test um, is a little harder to interpret or a little harder for you as the clinician to take the results and move forward with, with the treatment plan.
1: Yeah, so hybrid oncocytic uh, chromophobes uh, can often have some false positive um, uh, characteristics found on this test. Uh, There's some eosinophilic eosinophilic variants of chromophobe RCCs that are typically indolent that also may potentially uh, have some false positive or false negative uh, avidity on this test. So clearly not 100% uh, sensitivity, somewhere around 87%. But uh, at least in the terms of oncocytoma versus clear cell, it seems to be uh, a relatively good pro- performance characteristics to stratify those two histologic subtypes.
0: And, and then maybe my, my, real, my last question on this, which is real, sort of a real practical question, is um, how, how does one really incorporate this into the workflow of renal masses and and here's why I'm asking the question. So obviously I think we all recognize that we probably remove more benign renal tumors than we ideally should. Um and, and that being said, we all have a barrage of people who come in with small renal masses because they get imaging for a myriad of reasons. And so at least at, at Penn State one of the challenges is um, how do we incorporate this technology? Uh, obviously, it's an additional imaging study, but h- how does one work that into the workflow of the small renal mass population and trying to use this so that it's just not another test that the patient has to get, but but really can reliably perhaps help uh, in that regard? So how do you work it into your workflow? And, and I don't know if you use this at UNC, but maybe your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, yeah, we, we've started to adopt it more and more, and I think it's part of our learning curve. And to be entirely honest, I'm not sure if we had established the perfect workflow yet on how we adopt this into our our patient care, because there is so many imaging modalities already that exist that give us key pieces of information. Um, The guidelines still risk stratify renal masses based on stage, not histologic subtype. So it does beg the question that, you know, until that changes, we're not exactly sure to do with some of these other malignant Histologic subtypes, but typically, um, if we do get it and it is uh, clearly, you know, hot, suggesting that it is an oncocytoma, that is someone we are much, much more comfortable uh, observing going forward.
0: No, I think that uh, that makes sense, and and obviously, I, I think um, the the one additional benefit when one looks at, for example, renal mass biopsies, obviously, this is really wholly non uh, non interventional, and even though renal mass biopsies become more safe over time. There's always some inherent risk associated uh, with that. So maybe we'll finish off uh, with uh, the the kidney tumor discussion, um, looking a little bit more at, at um, malignant kidney cancer specifically um, uh, the 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 those that are expressing uh, carbonic anhydrase nine. Um, so talk a little bit about uh, radio labeled gerontoximab. What, what is that? Um, how does it work? Um, and, and talk a little bit about how that that sort of helps us in our kidney cancer armamentarium.
1: Yeah. So gerontuximab, uh, formerly known as this G250 antibody, it's made by Telex Pharmaceuticals, uh, selectively binds a uh, cell surface zinc um, carbonic anhydrase uh, molecule and Carbonic anhydrase is very high in clear cell renal cell carcinomas. So it's very specific for identifying that histologic uh, subtype. Uh, It's been studied both internationally and nationally. There was a large uh, phase three international study that just came out called the Zircon study. And it really showed that uh, it was pretty high sensitivity, 86%, 87% specificity, and 93% positive predictive value. in terms of identifying specifically clear cell, renal cell carcinoma, all these patients then subsequently had surgical uh, removal as the gold standard. Uh, but it is an interesting test that, um, A, it allows us to identify, you know, one of the more higher aggressiveness histologic subtypes. So it may push someone over into actual active treatment versus uh, surveillance. But I think kind of the next leading phase in, in this um disease is especially in a malignancy that you can now consider atta- attaching a drug onto it. So instead of just identifying this is a clear cell kidney cancer, can we identify and then treat it similar to the theranostics of uh, PSMA and prostate cancer?
0: Um, and, then, and then maybe my, my related question to that is what, what's coming on the horizon? What are, what are some of the emerging radio tracers uh, that we should know about in this space?
1: Well, I, I think um, <clears throat> there uh, a number of pharmaceutical companies are, are attaching uh, gadolinium onto uh, different uh, molecules like these that can be incorporated into small renal masses um, in terms of diagnostics. But uh, I think the thera- theranostics is really the exciting uh, spot because we can incorporate, you know, immunotherapy or a TKI on top of this radio tracer. Uh, so then we're really minimally tre- treating minimally invasively treating these patients with uh, small uh, kidney tumors.
0: Uh, you know, I think you've highlighted in, in several different instances that the so much of conventional um, imaging, axial imaging right now is, is really looking at size. And, and especially when you look at disease that is spread or, or you're assessing if disease is spread, um, you're, you're again looking at size thresholds, whether it's a size of lung nodules, signs of lymph nodes, and, and to the point, I think a lot of this really um, refines our ability to better define um, disease that may be outside of the organ of interest, whether that's prostate or, as you talked about more recently, kidney. But but to your point, I, I really do think that some of these theranostics may really change the disease paradigm of how we think about managing um, for example, advanced or locally advanced kidney cancer. Um, maybe those that were going to be systemic therapy. Maybe there is a potential for surgery. Hard to know, and I, obviously this has to be studied. But it it is a, a real exciting tool in the toolbox.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the potential benefits of of this theranostic space is that the disease treatment will be really limited to the disease alone. It won't truly be a be a, you know, systemic treatment. So the, the, the radioactive drug will actually bind to those cells with the, the type of histologic cancer you're trying to aim, and then hopefully can limit the side effects uh, to other parts of, you know, the body, and as a result, maintain our patient's quality of life while getting their malignancy treated.
0: That's great. Well, very well said, Mark. Well, as always, Mark, uh, it's great to have you. Uh, always appreciate you taking uh time to join us. Uh, it's uh, nice to pick your brain. It's actually nice uh, as we do these. I feel like I learn a lot because I get the next iteration uh, from when we last spoke six or 12 months ago on what's what's now part of our practice. So really uh, on behalf of the Office of Education, really do appreciate your time as always to join us on these podcasts. Wonderful.
1: Great to see you again. And thank you again for the invitation.
0: To our audience, thank you very much for your attention. Uh, for more information, please visit us at slash university. Uh, Mark, again, good seeing you. Uh, I wish you and your family a great holiday. Hopefully, you have some time off. You
1: too. Thank you again.